one, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Former Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev has passed away, leading to a lot of misguided or dubious commentary in the mainstream media about what he represented. I'm here today with uh, Renfrey Clark, who was a Green Left correspondent and a member of the Socialist Alliance. At the, at the time, he was a member of the Democratic Socialist Party. He was a Green Left correspondent based permanently in Moscow from 1990 through to 1998. And he witnessed firsthand the last 18 months of the Soviet Union and the period of capitalist restoration immediately after that. And so we're going to speak to uh, Renfrey about, um, about Gorbachev and the legacy he represented. Before we get underway, I want to acknowledge that we've recorded this interview on stolen Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and we pass our respects to Elders past and present. Also, if you like the work that we do, please become a Green F supporter. It is the number one way that you can support our work, get our content, and there's a link in the description below. Mikhail Gorbachev is clearly a significant historical figure. I started by asking Renfrey, a lot of people see Gorbachev as an enemy of socialism, responsible for the collapse of the Soviet Union. A lot of people see Gorbachev as a person who brought necessary reform to a Stalinist system in crisis. So Renfrey, how would you analyze Gorbachev's legacy? Uh, why did the Soviet system need reforming and what can we understand from this? It's a huge topic and I'll, I'll try to draw out some of the main threads. There's no question that Gorbachev is a significant historical figure. There are not many people yet to decide over the destruction of one social system and the installation of another. And that's what Gorbachev initiated at the very least. Was he an enemy of socialism? Um, yes and no. It's a, it's a very complex question. We have to consider who Gorbachev was and where he came from. He was very much a creature of the Soviet bureaucracy of um, the 1960s, when he began making his career in a serious way. Um, by the 1980s, he was a well-established um, figure uh, from, the, from, the, from the south of, south of Russia. He was recognised as somebody who was very capable and energetic. And there were hopes in, in Moscow at the top layers of the Soviet Communist Party. But this was perhaps the person who needed, who they needed, and his perspectives were what was needed to inject some life into the system and uh, slow its decline. So Gorbachev was a bureaucrat, part of the bureaucracy, had many of its attitudes and its perspectives. At the same time, as I said, he was very capable, open-minded, uh, kind of figure. He was at the same time very much in contact with the Soviet intelligentsia of the period and with its attitudes, and he shared, I think, many of its illusions. So while he had this grounding in socialism and, and, and Marxist ideas, uh, at the same time, <laughs> uh, he had this particular flavor. Of, uh, of the Marxism, the Soviet Marxism of the time, that, that was bureaucratic. At the same time, he was 
closely integrated with the intelligentsia and its modes of thinking. And these were people who had certain contacts with the West, uh, who were very dissatisfied with the Soviet system. Before it constrained their possibilities as individuals, constrained the possibilities of the society as a, as a whole. Um, and they had enormous illusions in capitalism. Another thing to remember is the way Gorbachev was perhaps at arm's length, but certainly in contact with. There was nobody in the late 1980s who had as much admiration for the capitalist system and as much as great hopes of what it could do for them as the Soviet intelligentsia of its time. So to a certain extent, Gorbachev shared those hopes and those illusions. He was one of these people who didn't know an enormous amount about capitalism, but nevertheless thought that there were opportunities and possibilities there. And others within that layer uh, went vastly further than this. They loved capitalism, no question, more than just about anybody else in the world. Was he an enemy of socialism? He was certainly extremely critical of the way that socialism had been practiced in the Soviet Union, uh, particularly since the 1920s. He saw that it needed a fundamental renovation. Um, up to a certain point, he attempted to carry out that renovation. The ideas that he attempted to implement were in many ways rather naive. Um, one of the first the campaign that he launched in uh, the late 1980s was a campaign for acceleration for Soviet citizens to work more efficiently. Uh, there was this hope that if people had a variety of material incentives then Soviet growth rates, which had been lagging disastrously since the mid-1970s, could be boosted once again. So you give people material incentives, you pay them given the possibility of earning higher bonuses, and you hope that on that basis you would repair the Soviet system. No, its, it's problems were vastly more fundamental than, than that. And what his acceleration program uh, actually created was a vast so-called ruble overhang, huge quantities of rubles, these bonuses um, that uh, went into people's pockets to which no material goods, particularly consumer goods, corresponded. That was a recipe for wild inflation, which was suppressed because of the fixed price system. Uh, now, another, prog another program, um, the anti-alcoholism program, another uh, enormous problem of Soviet socialism that people saw and considered needed dealing with, like simplistic solution, we will make it much more difficult to get your hands on alcohol. And this, this program was, was simply a disaster. What it meant in effect was much, much what it meant in Chicago in the 1920s, that you handled this very large industry over to the mafia. And the Soviet Union certainly did have its mafia elements. And at the same time, it was revenues from taxation in, in uh, uh, on alcohol that provided a lot of the revenues of the Soviet state in the 1980s and uh, you suppressed the sale of alcohol, the legitimate sale of alcohol, and you lost those revenues and you created deficits, you created further inflationary pressures. 
So a variety of basically rather haphazard and inadequate measures that Gorbachev uh, and the people around him settled on in the vain hope that this would repair the problems of the system. Now, the problems of the Soviet system went far deeper than that. The critical problem was um, a system of economic administration that had been introduced at the end of the 1920s under Stalin, under Stalin and that in essence amounted to the abolition of the petty bourgeoisie, a class of small traders, small entrepreneurs, small service providers. And this was to be taken over by the state. The trouble is that planning activities at that level by the state is something which is damn near impossible. The number of planning decisions that you need to make becomes astronomical. The situation is that these planning decisions are simply not made and that people are forced to improvise. They're forced to try to get around the plan. The plan loses much of its validity and force and potential as a result. What was necessary at that stage was the retention of that layer of, of small traders to provide all these small services and, and, and petty goods. Uh, at the same time, as demanding heights of the economy were kept under the general planning system and, uh, and were run rationally under general state control. And this remarkably obtuse system of meticulous, detailed micro planning remained right up to the 1980s when its potential had been absolutely exhausted and it was a tremendous drag on the economy. This need, needed to be dismantled. One of the ideas that Gorbachev um, floated and, and other intellectuals in the Soviet Union were pushing quite hard on was for a return to some of the structures of the new economic policy period in the 1920s, which was a mixed economy in which state control over the main elements of the economy, the commanding heights, was combined with giving a certain lane to, to private entrepreneurs at the lower economic level. And that idea was tossed around. There were attempts to implement it, but again, uh, not very inspired and certainly not effective. My own opinion is that by that stage in the late 1980s, the whole thing was too far gone. The demoralization within Soviet society as a whole was far too great. Officials at all levels regarded the system with utter cynicism. Their perspectives were to try to get around it, to subvert it, to try to look after themselves and their friends, not giving a damn for the health of society or for the mass of working people. This was something that needed to be turned around. Gorbachev, with his basic allegiance, to the Soviet Communist Party and uh, the people, his colleagues, uh, wasn't the person to do this. It needed, in, in many ways, a much more radical perspective that rested on the working people and their own political initiatives. But even the possibility of that by the state, I think, was out of reach. The population as a whole shared in the pessimism and cynicism of the bureaucracy. Mainstream commentary has 
emphasized this question of the Soviet economic crisis, which was undoubtedly true, but there's a hidden implication in that that the capitalist system is superior. Can you comment on that in relation to the practical experiences of the capitalist restoration in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe? Well, to be quite brief, the effects of attempting to uh, install capitalism in a mechanical way in the society um, were absolutely disastrous. By um, 1998, when I was still in Russia, um, gross domestic product, that is the size of the economy, was barely half of what it had been in the last um, in the last full year of the Soviet system in, in 1990. Uh, capitalism hadn't worked in the Soviet Union. Uh, capitalism hadn't worked in the uh, newly restored Russian state after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, it had been totally inappropriate for the structures which were there in the Soviet Union, and the result was an entirely predictable disaster. Now, how did this come about? What were some of its main traits? Now, remember that the Soviet Union was uh, a society and economy which was designed to be planned. Its economy was totally unlike the capitalist economies of the West. Industries were highly monopolized. The Soviet model of, uh, of production was to build a great big factory that had as many as possible of the inputs we had to do under, under the same roof to expedite planning and to expedite management. Uh, so you had numerous monopolies, at least local. Now, the end of price controls, what did those monopolies do? They raised prices in order to increase their profits, as they were now able to do. So you had this tremendous boost to inflation added to the liberal overhang pressures that already existed. Who were the people who ran these industries? They were all members of the Communist Party, but they weren't exactly Bolsheviks. These were industrial managers who had a fine taste for their own power, who enjoyed it and who uh, enjoyed exercising it. Their normal way of operating was to refer to the plan up to a certain point, but to actually get things done, you had to go around the plan, which was inadequate, which couldn't possibly uh, make all the decisions that were needed, you had to deal with your mates in allied industries, your suppliers, your customers, and all sorts of corrupt, under-the-table activities went on. You had the possibility for those industrial managers to look after themselves to a remarkable degree. They were given the power under Gorbachev um, from about 1986 to set up cooperatives. It was possible to set up their own little private enterprise. So these industrial managers did that on a big scale. They found ways of siphoning off money from the enterprises that they managed 
each of the cooperatives that they owned. On that basis, they made themselves petty and often and eventually not so petty capitalists on the basis of state resources. So that we had these large hordes of money growing up in the hands of uh, these industrial magnates. Uh, other people who were putting money together were the mafia. We had corrupt hordes and we had criminal hordes as well. So that we had the makings of a capitalist class, but it wasn't the kind of capitalist class that the Soviet intelligentsia had looked towards or that um, the commentators from the West had imagined would come into being in, in the Soviet Union. It was a capitalist class that had a tradition in these bureaucratic, semi-criminal ways of operating of the old industrial managers and it rested heavily shared the attitudes and practices of the emerging mafia bourgeoisie. And a worse kind of situation, the creation of a capitalist society, could hardly be imagined. Now, another thing, this absolutely wasn't a capitalist society in any variety in the Soviet Union. It functioned in fundamentally different ways. Uh, it didn't have the institutions of a capitalist society. It didn't have a Western-style banking system. It didn't have all the apparatus, uh, the legal apparatus, the labor laws, the commercial laws that regulate interactions between capitalists in the West. That didn't exist. The Soviet Union had no need for it. And when you decided that right now we will be, we will be capitalists, you don't have that legal apparatus. What you have is a kind of mayhem in which very large and very ruthless people rule. And again, a recipe for disaster, and that was pretty much what unfolded. They lost half their GDP in the course of the 1990s. The Soviet economy, the great superpower, now, now Russia, Finished up the stage when the size of Russian gross domestic product in 1998 was somewhere between that of Belgium and the Netherlands. What are the popular attitudes today and in the period since the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, for the previous previous Soviet times? Well, I suppose this goes through various stages. Um, in the 1990s, when I was there. People still remembered the misery that endured in the final years of the Soviet Union. Um, I can look back to the way that I lived as a, a publishing worker in, in Moscow in 1990, looking for a, a joint venture. Um, and I remember the, the supermarket at the bottom of my apartment block. Once, you know, early on in the 1970s, it had been reasonably full. By the stage in 1990, it was virtually empty. I remember going down there and noting what was on sale. There was mineral water, there was salt, um, there was uh, what the Russians called sea cabbage, which was in, in fact uh, uh, seaweed from the far east. Um, I rather liked it, and it was extremely nutritious, but the Russians despised the idea of eating something like seaweed. And the other thing that was on sale in this 
a supermarket was uh, squid tentacles, which is what we fed to cats. And if you can imagine the way that people responded to living on that level, you can sense the disillusionment and the anger. Now, there's more to this story because things were still being produced. It's just that they were um, going out the back door where the supermarket staff retailed them for hugely inflated prices to their mates. And this was how people lived. They had arrangements like this. But the system was in utter chaos and collapse. It was, it was no question. And in the 1990s, people looked back on that and they weren't perhaps quite so nostalgic, even though their, their continuing situation was worse than it had been in the Soviet Union because the social provisions that had survived in the Soviet Union were now being dismantled. Uh, over the decades since, um, in my experience, you know, the horrors of the 1990s have faded to an extent in, uh, in popular consciousness, and people tend to have a, a rosy-tinged view of the old Soviet Union. Life wasn't so bad. Um, you had uh, guaranteed health care, guaranteed education, you had the state provided your housing. If you just liked um, a cosy little apartment and uh, a job where you didn't have to work very hard and nobody hassled you very much, and plenty of ice hockey on television, and life wasn't so bad. That's what people tend to remember now. At least the older generation, younger generation, you know. Um, 30 years ago, um, they, they don't have recollections of, of the Soviet Union, except insofar as pe older people tell them that, well, things were good, things were stable, things were reliable, things were predictable, that, that kind of attitude. So there's a genuine nostalgia for the, for the Soviet Union in many ways, given that the, the situation now is, is, is not good, living standards are not high, the amount of money around in today's Russia is about one-fifth of that in, in Australia. The system of social provisions has largely collapsed. The pensions are inadequate. The healthcare is in grave decline and, and largely subject to spontaneous privatisation. Um, so the hassles of everyday life in Russia are, are pretty savage. And the prospects for things getting better are not great because growth rates in the last few years have been very low. You know, people accept capitalism, they're used to capitalism now, they, they hate what they have at the moment. Uh, there is this nostalgia of the Soviet Union when, when uh, things were different, sort of through the, the haze of memory. Those are today's popular attitudes that I see them. Well, Gorbachev is known for his efforts to limit and even reverse nuclear proliferation. Can you please comment on this? Also, to what extent was the Soviet Union responsible for the threat of nuclear war in the 1970s and 80s? And what lessons can we learn about that for today? Well, the process of uh, defusing the, the nuclear time bomb, which is a mistake, was in the, uh, in the 1970s. Um, the Strategic Arms Limitations Treaty with, with the United States that limited the, the number and capacity of um, strategic 
uh, ballistic missiles. Um, the other Gorbachev office is largely responsible for the Intermediate Range Nuclear, um, Nuclear Weapons Treaty, which was finally signed in 1987. And this restricted the number of, uh, of, uh, of weapons with a range of between 500 and 5,000 kilometers. These are some of the most dangerous because it was very difficult to protect yourself against missiles that would be there within a few minutes. Um, and Gorbachev very pushed very hard to do away with these, these, these missiles, to do away with that nuclear capacity, and in general, to reduce the level of nuclear threat. That's one of his main accomplishments, I think, for which we remembered the fact that we all survived. Um, now, this uh, is one of the great figures of nuclear deproliferation. The strategic uh, arms limitation treaty now essentially forgotten. The intermediate range nuclear forces treaty very deliberately consciously dismantled under Trump in 1917 by the United States, which is something that angered and disillusioned uh, the Russian population and the Russian leadership. Um, there have been these illusions, these tremendous illusions among the Russian intelligentsia in the 1990s that they could make themselves capitalists and they'd be accepted by the wider world and that uh, they would be upwardly mobile professionals living well, living like in Sweden. It wasn't so. Um, but those were the illusions in the, in the 1990s by, by the time of Trump and the dissolution of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, then a lot of people were realizing that, well, the capitalists in the West are not benign. They are not benign on our side. And uh, if, they, if they're going to do away with this treaty, doesn't this mean that they're going to attack us? And uh, that's substantially the case. Capitalism is not benign. It doesn't regard the Soviet Union as a partner to be embraced or to be given a share in the wealth. It has a totally different attitude towards Russia and its role in today's world. A number of commentators have sought to draw comparisons and contrasts between Gorbachev and the current Russian president, Putin, uh, saying that Putin is trying to restore a grander Russian empire. Can you please comment on this? Gorbachev and Putin were profoundly different figures. Gorbachev was, in my opinion, a much more intelligent person than, than Putin. He was far more open-minded vastly more flexible. Um, while Gorbachev was a would-be reformer within the apparatus um, and someone who wanted, at least initially, to maintain some of the, con the conquests, the essential conquests of socialism, right back from the, the days of uh, the Russian Revolution, um, but he then, under the pressure of events, as things fell apart, decided that he'd rather switch the fight 
Putin was somebody very different. Putin was a cop. Putin was um, a member of the Foreign Intelligence Service of the state for a long time in, in East Berlin. He had those very narrow, bureaucratic, authoritarian perspectives of the Soviet KGB. He came to power. Um, he was very mindful of just how far reduced Russia had been in global terms. It had been reduced to the status of a dependent, semi-developed power. And that was something that grated on him intensely, and simply on him. Putin's base was primarily the intelligence services, the intelligence services which had been part. More broadly, it was the, um, the so-called power ministries in Russia, um, intelligence, the security service, the military, um, the militia, the police force, these power ministries, these organs of uh, uh, organs of coercion that enforced this ramshackle capitalist system that had grown up in Russia. And those were Putin's perspectives. That was the kind of guy that he was. He was religious. He had uh, discovered Jesus in middle life. He had these very reactionary ideas about Russian destiny, these silly mystical ideas about the Russian world that encompassed places like Belarus and Ukraine and even to some extent um, countries of Central Asia, where there were large numbers of, numbers of Russian, Russians. Did this mean that he had this ambition to reincorporate um, these other bits of the world near Russia into a renewed Russian empire? The evidence actually doesn't bear out this idea. Um, one thing about Putin is that he's intensely hard-headed and that he has a, a very good grasp of what his interests and what the interests of the Russian state are. And they clearly don't include war with nearby powers, let alone with NATO. That's something that they resist. Now, it's often, there's a lot of talk, particularly in the commentaries on the, around the, uh, the war with Ukraine at the moment, about Russian imperialism. Well, Russian imperialism uh, disappeared with the fall of the old of the old Tsarist Empire. That was an old feudal mercantile imperialism that has no place in today's world and that substantially no longer exists. The imperialism of that own day is very much a modern capitalist imperialism. And Russia is not a modern capitalist country. It's a relatively poor capitalist country with a a strikingly undeveloped and undiversified economy. It's not an imperialist power. It's in the same category uh, with countries like Mexico and Brazil, South Africa, India. The top tier of developing countries is not in position to challenge the real imperialists, um, the countries of, of uh, North America and of Western Europe. So is this a real perspective? 
of Putin of today's Russian state to restore the so-called Soviet empire with other region, countries in the region coming under the Russian umbrella? No. This will, as I said, are hard-headed, they realize their possibilities. Russian foreign policy always has been very cautious, very restrained. Uh, if you look at the number of wars, foreign wars that, that, that Russia has fought uh, since, you know, since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, it's, it's only a handful in there uh, until um, the invasion of Ukraine. These were very minor uh, border skirmishes, disputes with Moldova, the Transnistria region, the uh, war in uh, in South Ossetia, technically part of Georgia, though ethnically distinct. These were in the order of police actions on the Russian border. Um, in in the case of, of Georgia in circumstances where the Russians were intensely afraid that Georgia was going to enter into, into NATO and become a real threat to it right on its border, sort of transmitting the military power of, uh, of the Western countries, who were by no means benign towards Russia. Uh, we're not really talking about the kind of imperialism, the kind of empire thinking that we find in the case of uh, countries like Britain, you know, over the war waging, you know, waging war on the opposite side of the world in the Falklands, the United States with uh, close to a thousand military bases around, around the world and waging wars in the Middle East. Well, even Australia with its expeditionary forces to Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan. Nothing like that in the case of Russia. This is not an imperialist country. Okay? very strict limitations on its foreign policy. They understand that their possibilities there uh, are very limited and they're extremely reluctant to venture any such thing. They'll do it only under intense pressure, particularly the pressure of NATO expansion, which is something that they're very worried by, worried by because if you think about it, the Russians have had this long experience over centuries of being invaded by forces coming from the West. Now, the idea of uh, NATO expansion into Ukraine is something that the Russians are extremely toey about. They're not an imperialist power. They don't share that imperialist cast of mind. Um, their economic structures are not imperialist. They're not compelled by a surplus of capital that's not making sufficient um, profits within their own, own borders to try to expand economically abroad. Totally different. Um, Russians have these vast natural resources. They lack capital in order to invest there and to develop what could be very, very profitable exports of minerals and of energy, energy carriers and so forth. Um, so, the notion of the restoration attempts by Putin to restore the Russian Empire have it all wrong. Thanks very much, Renfrey, for joining us. Um, as I said before, if you like our work, please do become a Green Left supporter. There's a link in the description below. 
I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.